0: Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you again for the third and final part of our series here on Assurance. You know, last week I I hit you rather hard talking about the necessity of reading your Bible, and I thought what I would do this morning would be to start out by giving you the top ten signs that you may not be reading your Bible enough. So, you know where this is going, don't you? (laughs) you. So here they are, number 10. The preacher announces the sermon is from Galatians and you check the table of contents. Number nine, you think Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob may have had a few hit songs during the 60s. (laughs) You open to the Gospel of Luke and a World War II savings bond falls out. (laughs) Your favorite Old Testament patriarch is Hercules. (laughs) A small family of woodchucks has taken up residence in the Psalms of your Bible. Number five, you become frustrated because Charlton Heston isn't listed in either the concordance or the table of contents. (laughs) Number four, catching the kids reading the Song of Solomon, you demand... Who gave you this stuff? (laughs) Number three, you think the minor prophets worked in the quarries. Number two, you keep falling for it every time pastor tells you to turn to first condominiums. (laughs) And the number one sign, you may not be reading your Bible enough. The kids keep asking too many questions about your usual bedtime story. Jonah the shepherd boy and his ark of many colors. <laughs> so the importance of reading your Bible cannot be underestimated. Again, we've been talking about the need for assurance and I've been quoting the last three weeks here a quote by an unknown Puritan writer. He said, Assurance will assist us in all duties. It will arm us against all temptations. It will answer all objections. It will sustain us in all conditions. The reason I have been addressing the issue of assurance is because I think it is important for your walk of faith. It is important for us to know where our eternal destiny lies and what our relationship with our Lord is like. It helps us in all conditions. It, it empowers us to live the Christian life. And as I've uh, said the last three weeks in John uh, John's epistle here, 1 John, he has structured his argumentation around the fact that we can have assurance based on three responses or three <laughs> responses, I guess. <laughs> Sorry. Three responses uh, to God's three attributes. I guess that's what I was trying to say. There are three attributes of God outlined in the book, and our response to each of those three attributes determines whether or not we are in the faith. And the first of those attributes is that God is light. We saw that two weeks ago. God is light, and if you know God, you will walk in the light. The second week, we talked about the fact that God is righteous or God is truth, and therefore, if you know God, you will not deceive, you will not lie, but you will do the truth or practice righteousness. This week we're coming to the topic of love, and this is the third attribute of God. God is love, John says, and we see that in a couple of verses, which we'll look at in a few minutes. But what we are doing here these three weeks is we are looking at three tangible evidences that we can get our arms around, that we can know, that we know, that we know, that we can have assurance that our salvation is secure, that this assurance of salvation will be strengthened. And those tangible evidences, we have said, are walking in the light, wrestling for the truth, and this week, willing to love. So if you're not there already, turn to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7, and we'll pick up the reading there. We'll be reading through chapter 5 and verse 3. So if you want to look at A pew Bible, it's on page 1218. As believers, we must will to love. So 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, That God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love and the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. You know, there's a lot of information in this, and I wish I could spend the time to go through it in more detail. But as it is, we're going to skim the text, largely just, again, pulling pulling verses out and, and forming our message from that. You know, love has inspired poets and artists for centuries, has it not? We can think of Shakespeare. We can think of the great art, songs that we love, country music, love lost. Lots have tried to understand it, define it, picture it, and even try to hold on to it. But in the end, we don't really know what love is. Mankind to this day still doesn't understand love. He doesn't. And only God's Word accurately defines for us what true love is, what biblical love is, and where it comes from. And this morning, we're going to see two elements to having assurance through love. We want to know God's love for us, and we want to know how to love others biblically. So two elements, again, this willing to love characterizes believers. And the first element this morning that I want you to see is the premise, and that is in verses eight and verses sixteen of chapter four of first John. The one he says, who does not love does not know God, for God is love. It's a very direct statement. God is love. And you don't know God if you don't love. First John four sixteen, and we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love and the one who abides in love abides in God and God in him. So, these, uh, these two words here, this come to know and, and have believed, these are perfect verbs. I guess uh, the meaning uh, is that the actions have happened in the past and they have ongoing present results, which means that the results are continuing. In other words, they're believers. They have come to know the gospel and they have understood the gospel and they're believers. What I'm saying is that by loving one another, you can't come to salvation. This is for believers. Assurance is for believers. I can't give you any measure of assurance if you're not doing these things. But if you are doing these things and you're a believer, I can give you assurance this morning. These are believers that we're talking about. And and John says, if you do not love one another as believers, then you don't know God you obviously misunderstand the character of God. If you're not abiding in love, you're not abiding in God. It's that simple. Uh, Two times John says, God is love. It doesn't get any more plain than that. Since God is love, then only those who know Him can love like Him. Any sense of assurance we have as believers is tied to this truth. God is love. It's a defining attribute of who he is. Now, the opposite is not true. Love is not God, right? Unlike uh, the little experimentation back in the 60s and 70s and the free love and all of that, you don't come to know God through love. Uh, Love is not God. God is love, and God has demonstrated that love to us in his son, Jesus Christ. Now, contrary to what many would tell you today, uh, they think this is God's defining attribute, that God is love, and and therefore God would never send anybody to hell, right? Is that a truism? No, I don't think so. That's not what his word says. Uh, the open theist would tell you that it's, it's God's primary attribute, that God is love, and so in order to To love mankind, he intentionally limited his sovereignty so that he could enter into a relationship with man and they could both learn and grow together. That's hogwash, Uh, and it's it's not biblical at all. God's primary attribute, I believe, would be his holiness, uh, not his love. God is love, God is wrath, um, and those two need to be held in equal balance. So, yes, people still go to hell, Uh, because God is a loving God, right? And he has extended himself in Christ, but many have rejected that love. You know, 1 Corinthians 13 has been called the great love chapter of the Bible, right? You've all heard that. I'm sure that's not news to you. But I think 1 John 4 should win the title for the great love chapter. As we have just read through that, and you compare 1 Corinthians 13 to 1 John 4, uh, you ought to notice some things. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 13, love is only used nine times. Uh, Sixteen times in the whole letter of 1 Corinthians, spread over 16 chapters. When you look at 1 John, it's used 19 times in, in chapter 4. 34 times in the whole letter, spread over five, verse, uh, five chapters. Much more densely packed in 1 John. This is the place to go if you want to read about God's love for you. You know, the Greeks were more sophisticated than us. Uh, they used four different words for love. You've probably heard this before, right? A little more accurate in their language. We say, love this. I I love that. I love my car. I love, I love all you guys. I love this church. I, you know, we throw love around a lot, but... But the Greeks defined it a little more accurately. They had phileo love, right? Which is where we get Philly cheesesteak from. (laughs) Storge, right? More familial type of love. Eros, which is more of the physical love. And then agape love, which is God's love for mankind. It's, it's loving the other despite their lovability, despite their unlovability, I should say. It's, it's sacrificial. It's, it's willful love. And that's what we're talking about this morning. We have to will to love other people because it doesn't come naturally, does it? It doesn't come naturally unless there's something in it for us. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5, if you will. Turn to the left. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. The Apostle Paul writing here says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. The word here, uh, imitate, is mimic, and the idea is that we would, we would imitate God in this respect. How did God love us? Sacrificially in his Son. How are we to love one another? Sacrificially. The idea is always sacrificial. He, Christ gave himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God. Beloved, when we talk about loving the way God loves, we're always talking in terms of sacrificial love. And this should revolutionize how we treat one another, both in the church and in our homes. And assurance is found in the fact that God is love and that you understand that love, that that love motivates you and that you mimic that love. That's where your assurance is. Uh, Again, we're looking at God's primary, uh, not his primary attributes. We're looking at three of God's attributes here. God is light, God is truth, and God is love. And if you know God, you will imitate him. And that's John's whole point. So the second element I want to see, I'm moving through quickly this morning because we are going to celebrate communion together today. So the second element is the perfections, and there really are three of them, uh, three perfections of God's love, uh, which should compel us to love one another. In this, in this book, the uh, Apostle John says four times that God's love is perfected in believers. Four times. Uh, look at chapter 2, verse 5, if you want to flip back to 1 John. actually back up to verse 4 he says uh, chapter 2 verse 4 the one who says I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him but verse 5 but whoever keeps his word in him the love of God has truly been perfected very plain statement chapter 4 verse 12 we read it this morning no one has seen God at any time but if we love one another God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Verse 17, by this love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in the world. Playing off the statement, God is love, and the one who abides in God, God abides in him. And verse 18, there is no fear in love, But perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. Resting in the love of God, beloved, is an important concept to being a believer. Being a believer, knowing God's love and imitating God's love. So the question is, this idea of perfecting God's love, you're probably asking yourself, How could I possibly contribute anything to the love of God, right? How could I perfect the love of God? And the answer is that we complete it in the sense that we are the recipients of it and we are the witnesses to it. That's the only way, really. We don't have anything to do with it. In and of itself, God's love is perfect. He has loved us perfectly in Christ, so again, what I want to do is look at three perfections here. The first perfection is that God sacrificed His Son for us. God sacrificed His Son for us. Look at verses 9-11 to 11 of chapter 4. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us, and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And then 1 John 4:14, 4, and we have beheld and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be the savior of the world. So how has God love been perfected? Well, He sent the Son for us. He sacrificed his son for us. See, it isn't that when when they use the word that God so loved the world, it isn't that he loved it so much. It's that he loved it in this way. In this way. This is how God loved the world. Sacrificially. Sacrificially. By giving us his son as a substitute for our sin. That's how he loved us you know, you can read your Old Testament, you can scour it, and I did, looking for statements that said that God loves somebody, or that God is love, and they're few and far between. There's only a handful of statements in your Old Testament that God loves somebody. Most of the time, they're commandments for His people to love Him, based on what He's done for them. But you scour the Old Testament, and you can find a few statements. He loves the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He loved Solomon. He loved David. But this concept of God is love is a New Testament thing, right? This is New Testament stuff. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that what? He gave His only begotten Son. And it wasn't that He, again, so loved the world. He loved it so much. It's that this is how He loved it. He loved it in this way in that He gave it His only begotten Son. So the, the love of God, uh, turn to Romans 5.8, if you will. Let me just follow this up with one verse here. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Sacrificial. It's a demonstration of the love of God. He's been commanding people for centuries to love him to no avail. They didn't have a heart to do it. And so God demonstrated to us his love for us in the sacrifice of his son. The love of God toward us. I guess the point is that it's tangible. It's, it's action. He didn't just say He loved us. He proved it. He proved it with the greatest demonstration possible of love. He incarnated, the very Son of God incarnated and gave Himself as a sacrifice on our behalf, in our place, in our stead. He sacrificed Himself for us. John uses a really rare word twice as well, 1 John 4. Really rare word in the New Testament. You should know this. And it is the word propitiation. Two times he uses the word propitiation in this one book. It only shows up a handful of times in the New Testament, but twice here in this book. And what is propitiation? Well, the Greek word is halosmos, and what it literally translates into is mercy seat. Jesus Christ was the mercy seat, if you will. And what does that mean? Well, the mercy seat is the, the lid on the tar- top of the Ark of the Covenant. It, it is the place where sacrifices were offered, where the blood was sprinkled to atone for man's sin, to provide a, a covering temporarily for man's sin. And so the sacrifice was made in blood and the, the covering was made temporarily. And God was, at that moment, satisfied, if you will, temporarily but as we know, the, the blood of animals, it's not eternal, right? Couldn't cover forever. But it is the, it is the place where God meets man in a sense. A propitiatory. So, it only occurs a few times. And here in First uh, John, it occurs in chapter 2 and verse 2, you see. He Himself is the propitiation for our sins and not only... For, not for ours only but for those of the whole world. And then over in chapter 4 and verse 10, in this is love not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The word occurs in Romans 325. It also occurs in Hebrews 217 and it also occurs again lastly in a different form in Luke 1813 and the idea there it's a passive imperative it's the story of the tax collector and the Pharisee who went up the temple to pray right and the the tax collector looked up to, looked his eyes up to heaven and he asked God to be propitious towards him or merciful be merciful to me, Lord, as the sinner and I guess the reason I tell you all that is because there's a point to it, and that is that the wages of sin is death, right? So Christ died the death that we deserved. You know, the idea of a blood sacrifice for the sin of our souls is a little, sounds a little barbaric, doesn't it? It's not with the times. It's it's a little old school. And there are people who, liberalism in particular, would argue that The blood sacrifice of Christ is barbaric. It's barbaric. What kind of God would demand a blood sacrifice? That's not sophisticated. That's not contemporary. But the reality is, our whole theology is built on the fact that Christ took our place. Christ died the death that we deserved. Christ is our sacrifice. He is our propitiation. He satisfies the wrath of God. And at that one moment, it's actually the greatest demonstration of the love of God. It's the greatest demonstration of the wrath of God and the love of God all at once in the taking of His Son's life. It's the greatest act of love the world has ever seen or will ever see again. Christ died On our behalf. John Piper says this. It's a prayer. And he says, I measure your love for me by the magnitude of the wrath I deserved and the wonder of your mercy by putting Christ in my place. A.W. Pink, we talked about him last week. He said, Christ died not in order to make God love us, but because he did love his people. Calvary is the supreme demonstration of divine love. Whenever you are tempted to doubt the love of God, Christian reader, go back to Calvary. God is love, and that love was demonstrated first and foremost in his Son, Jesus Christ. God sacrificed his Son for us. So, write this in your note. In order to love godly, I must love God. Sacrificially, sacrificially. If this is how God loved you, then this is how you are to love the brethren. First John four eleven again, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. John three sixteen, we've already talked about it. God so loved the world. But you know, a good verse to memorize as a corollary to that, John 3.16, 1 John 3.16. Look at that with me. Beloved, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. God's love is sacrificial. Our love should be sacrificial. God sent his son for us. The second perfection, God supplied His Spirit in us. God sacrificed His Son for us. God supplied His Spirit in us. 1 John 4.13 Another one of those, by this we know statements, right? By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us His Spirit. How do we know that we know that we know? Bottom line is you have the indwelling spirit or you don't. You either have it or you don't. You're either a professor or a possessor. Right? It's one or the other. Not only has God sacrificed His beloved Son on our behalf, but He has made His Spirit to dwell in us. Right? In us. The permanent indwelling of the Spirit of Christ provides us with the assurance that we will never be lost from the love of God. Never. It's permanent. Permanent means what? In Greek it means permanent. Permanent means permanent. Romans 5.5 The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The love of God is communicated to us by His Spirit indwelling us. They're really... Four permanent ministries of the Spirit, spirit which uh, really should solidify your assurance this morning. We're talking about assurance, and so let me run through these with you real quick. There is regeneration. Regeneration, Titus 3.5. I'm going to flip over there. I won't have you turn to all these references. I don't know what's coming up on the screen. Oh, just Titus 3.5. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. This is the point at which a person is taken from spiritual death to spiritual life. They are regenerated. They are born again. Their their affections are changed as as a consequence of being made spiritually alive. They get a new heart. They're new creatures in Christ. They are regenerated. They are reborn. And this is a necessary first step that God takes on behalf of the sinner because of the fall. All mankind is totally lost, totally depraved, totally helpless to save themselves. So God in his mercy regenerates us, giving us the ability to turn to Christ in faith. It is an act of God that precedes faith and enables faith. God regenerates us. He bears us again. Secondly, there is baptism. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. We're baptized into the body of Christ. We're united to Christ by faith and baptized into his body. In other words, we we are immersed into his body through our faith union with him, and we are permanently united to Christ Himself. It's permanent. And this only happens once. It is the plunge. It is the, it is the plunge into the body of Christ. It happens once. You are a spirit baptized. There is sealing, Ephesians 1, 13. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Sealing. The idea here is uh, fixing a seal or a stamp on something in order to declare ownership. God has declared his ownership of you. We are now his possession, if you will. We, we have the seal of the spirit, the mark of the spirit on us to prove it. You're sealed. The spirit is given as a, as a pledge or an earnest or a down payment on the transaction that God is going to complete. The Spirit himself also is our inheritance. Ephesians tells us he is our inheritance, the permanent indwelling of the spirit and then finally, permanent indwelling i 'm just going to have you turn to romans eight and nine on this one romans eight and nine <clears throat> The Apostle Paul says, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. The indwelling spirit of Christ. It is the mark of ownership. Spirit takes up residence in the believer. We are now the dwelling place of the spirit, and it's not. It's not just as an individual. There's a corporate aspect to it. We we as a body of believers are the dwelling place of of the Spirit. Corporately, we are the temple of God, according to 1 Corinthians 6, right? We are the dwelling place of God. The new temple. Sam Storm says this. He's a modern-day Calvinistic writer. He says, God does not simply give us His Spirit He gives the Spirit into us, not just to us, but by an act of what can only be called intimate impartation. His Spirit resides within to encourage, energize, and enable. The Spirit isn't just here, He's inside. That's new, beloved. That is new. In the history of humanity, the permanent indwelling of the Spirit within a believer that's big news that's big news. you are secure in Christ you know I don't have time to read through the whole chapter but but turn to Romans chapter eight and I just want to make an observation there if you will just an observation Romans eight two just track with me the word Spirit through Romans 8. It is part of the Gospel and a very big part of it at that. Romans 8, two, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Chap- uh, verse 4 The end of the verse, Spirit. Ver- verse 5, Spirit. Verse 6, Spirit. Verse 9, spirit, three times. Verse 11, spirit, twice. Verse 13, spirit. Verse 14, spirit. Verse 16, spirit. Verse 23, spirit. Verse 26, spirit, twice. Verse 27, spirit. And then what do you hit? Starting at verse 31, You hit the great promises of Romans 8 of the security of our love in God. And it's all part of chapter 8. What I'm saying here is that the great promises uh, of God regarding what will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, the reality is nothing, right? Nothing. Why is that? Because as the whole chapter outlines for us, we have the Spirit of God indwelling us. Nothing can separate you. You have been permanently united to Christ by His indwelling Spirit. Our assurance is directly connected to the indwelling presence of Christ through His Spirit. And you know, it it fascinates me. We live in a world today that is overrun with experiential charismatics, or we live in the frozen chosen, right? And And the reality is, there are three members of the Godhead, are there not? And we only really spend time talking about two of them. We only really spend time trying to get to know two of them. But there's this whole other third person of the Trinity that is either exploited or lost completely from our theology. You understand what I'm saying? The Spirit is the forgotten person of the Trinity. Yet He indwells you And it is the love of God poured out in your heart. You ought to get to know Him. I guess that's what I'm saying. So two perfections of God's love which should compel us to love one another. God sacrificed His Son for us. He supplied His Spirit in us. And third, perfection. God sanctifies sinners through us. Look at 1 John 4, verse 12. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Verse 17, by this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in the world. And if you just skim read, I don't have time to go through all this, but if you skim read verses 17 to 5-3, this is how God's love is manifested in our love for one another. Our love for one another is a demonstration, right? and that what Christ told his disciples as I have loved you so love one another right so if we love one another God abides in us and his love is perfected in us and the idea here is a present active it's not only love it's keep on loving if we love and keep on loving uh, God's love is perfected in us right if we love and keep on loving one another it's evidence that God's love has been perfected in us. And the idea of has been perfected, by the way, that's a perfect verb. That's a perfect verb. It has been perfected in us. It's in the state of having been perfected in us. It's a demonstration that God has worked in our hearts. It's not how we save ourselves. It's how God has saved us. But ongoing love is the evidence of regeneration and salvation. Verses 12, if you look at the text with me, verses 12 and 20, they form sort of bookends there. Bookends in the argument. No one has seen God at any time, but if we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. And then verse 20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So you see those two phrases there? There is, uh, no one has seen God, and then verse 20 ends with, God whom he has not seen. You ought to think long and hard about that, right? Nobody has seen God. Right? Unless one of you has. No one has seen God. John one eighteen tells us, no one has seen God, but Jesus Christ saw him and he... Explained him or exegeted him to us. And what did he explain to us about God? That God is light. That God is truth. And that God is love. That's what he explained to the apostles. And the apostles wrote it down. And that's the information that we now have about God. We know these things about God. And in particular, where we're at right now, God is love. And this is the commandment that you love one another. This is God's means of sanctifying us. Uh, John 15:12. John's gospel 15:12. You don't have to turn there, I will. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. This is the commandment. 1 John 3:23. This is the commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. Chapter 4, verse 21. And this commandment we have from Him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Chapter 5, verses 2 through 3. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. It's not hard for you if you're really a believer and the Spirit indwells you and you know the love of God. It's not that hard. It's not that hard to love other people. It shouldn't be. In contrast to that, at the time John is writing, the reality is that the false brethren, the false teachers, the false prophets, those who were in error, they hate the brethren. And they do things to hurt the church because they hate them. They hate them. So why the emphasis on loving one another? Why this emphasis in 1 John? Well, we've already said that the church as a whole is the dwelling place of the Spirit, right? The church corporately is the temple of God. Jesus even prayed in John 17 that we would be one as He and the Father are one, right? So to tamper with the unity of God's church, to not love one another and maintain that unity, is to, in a sense, divide the body through disunity, which is to tamper with the very unity of the Godhead. In the New Testament, it's held in higher judgment, if you will, or condemnation than just about any other sin. You look at Galatians 5 and the deeds of the flesh there. uh, Eight of those sins are predominantly sins of disunity. So Paul was was talking about the fact that to, to tear the body of Christ apart is to walk in the flesh. To walk in the Spirit is to do those things which build up the unity of the body of Christ. To love one another. What is the first of those fruits of the Spirit that's listed? Love. Right? Love. So it's, it's not optional. It's mandatory for believers. The fruit of the indwelling Spirit of God is love. It is love. I don't know the name of this author, but he said, mutual love is a sign of the indwelling of God in men. That's, that's all we're saying. It's, it's the same thing. If this is true, then we, if we truly love one another sacrificially then we can have assurance. We can be assured that God is at work in our lives. That's the whole point of this. God is at work in our lives if we love one another sacrificially. We can be assured that we are in the faith that God is in the process of saving us. right? And when the Bible talks about you being saved, it's a past tense event. You were saved. You presently are being saved. And future, you will be saved. Right? God is in a process, and part of that process is giving you to other people and those people to you. God sanctifies sinners through us. It's part of the sanctification process. So without the involvement of others in our lives, we will not be perfected, right? Colossians one twenty eight. I don't have time to turn there, but you can look that up for yourself. That is our 128 slogan, is it not? That's our life verse for 128. God has not gifted us all in the same way. He has given us a body of other believers who are gifted in different ways to make up for the areas where we're not gifted. So we need each other, beloved. We need each other big time to help in the sanctification process, Right? You know the one another's are listed in throughout the New Testament. the The word that's used is alleluia. It's the word one another, and I'll just pick up some here from Romans twelve. There are seven of them, just starting in Romans twelve five and running through the end of the book. There's seven of them. But listen to this, Romans twelve five. Members are to uh, we're to be members of one another. Romans 12.10, we're to be devoted to one another. Romans 12.10, we're to honor one another. Romans 15.5, we're to be of the same mind with one another. Romans 15.7, we're to accept one another. Romans 15.14, we're to admonish one another. Verses 16.16, 16, we're to greet one another. And this one isn't there, but we're to Facebook one another. <laughs> the one another's are implicit. They're all over the New Testament, beloved. Why is that? Because we are the one new man, Jews, Gentiles together, the new body of Christ, and we are to preserve that new entity by showing love to one another, right? Right? So, I've been thinking about this. In the kingdom of God, there's not going to be any lone rangers. Right? There are no lone rangers in the church. There are no lone wolves. If you're a lone wolf, then you don't understand the love of God. It's it's that plain and that simple. If you push the fellowship away, or you spend a lot of time on your own, or you don't like the body of Christ being involved in your life, then you don't understand the love of God. In Trinitarian love, they had fellowship with one another, and Christ prayed that our love would be the same as their love. And so if you don't understand the love of God, you don't understand fellowship, you're missing something. You're missing something big time. And it's it's difficult, if not impossible, for you to be sanctified in, in a lone wolf situation. You know, application-wise, you know, the reason why we place so much emphasis on small groups, small group ministry around here, is that our love for one another should be radically different from the world around us. It should be so radically different that people would look at it and they would go, Wow, that's what I need. That is different than anything I have seen before. And it's not just the small groups, it's our families. People should see our families and they should go, wow, I've never seen anything like that. Right? It, it, it should be head and shoulders above anything else that you've seen. And the reason why is not so that we look good. The reason why is that it's, it should be unexplainable apart from the work of God in our lives. It's, it's, it's evidence, it's a testimony of the evidence of God's work In our lives. This is why small groups are so important because in the small group setting we can practice these one another's, we can love one another, we can encourage one another, we can pray for one another, exhort one another, sacrificially love one another the way God intended and the way they really cannot be done in a large group setting this size. So let me just summarize all this here. We're out of time. Uh, God is love. So if I said this another way this morning, he has given us the person of his son, the power of his spirit, and the presence of the saints to compel and enable us to love one another as he has loved us. Your assurance this morning is to be found in your response to these three attributes of God, God is light, God is truth, God is love. If we know him truly, we will imitate him. If we are imitating him, then we can be assured that he is at work in our lives. John even says that, by the way, in his epistle here, John three eighteen to 19, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before Him. You can know that you know that you know. I believe you can. I hope this series has enriched your walk of faith. I, I hope you rest in the confidence of knowing that you are saved, that God is at work in your life and that He will not let you go. I pray that it will sustain you and all your conditions in life and all your circumstances for those of you who do not these truths do not resonate with you though you do not know the love of God in Christ Jesus then please talk to me after the service if you are not assured if you walk away from here feeling like I don't have an assurance that I'm saved I'm not walking in the light I'm not walking in the truth I'm not loving the brethren then something, you're missing something. The reality is that these things are assurances for believers, but if they're not true of you, then maybe you're not a believer. Maybe you're deceiving yourself. So let's talk. Let's talk after the service. I'm going to lead us in communion here this morning. As we talk about the sacrificial love of God this morning, I wanted you to turn to Isaiah 53. You know, one of our points was that God sacrificed his son for us. And as we come to the communion table this morning, that reality is never more apparent than in the demonstration of this meal, right? We can celebrate communion together because this bread is the body of Christ. This blood is the blood of Christ. These memorial meal pictures what Isaiah 53 says so clearly here. Verse 4, surely our griefs he himself bore. Uh, As I'm reading through here, I want you to think in terms of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And look how many times the word our is used in here. Okay? Because what it means is that Christ did this for our sins, our iniquities, our transgressions. Okay? Just follow the reading and think in those terms. Surely our griefs he himself bore. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. You Understand that? You understand what that means? That at Calvary, the love of God was demonstrated for you tangibly because all of your stuff, all of your sin, all of your iniquity, all of your transgressions were heaped upon Christ. And there they were nailed to that cross. And when Christ was buried, your sins were buried. When Christ was raised, you were raised with him, and now, beloved, you cannot be separated from that. Beloved, this table is symbolic of our assurance. Right? And you know when we when we look at Paul's great exhortation in 1 Corinthians 11 about The communion table and the reason some of those believers were falling asleep or dying off or or whatever their failure to discern the body what is that well it's because they were not loving the brethren they were not loving each other the way god had intended them to love and so god temporally was judging them they were feeling the immediate consequences of their disobedience to these truths This table is to be shared by us as brothers and sisters who are part of one body in Christ, indwelt by the Spirit of God, secure in fellowship and union with Christ. And beloved, this is a demonstration that we know and love God and we are waiting for our Savior to return for us. So let's pray this morning together. I'm going to pray as the men come forward. And then we'll all partake after we all have been served, okay? Our God and our Father, we thank you for who you are, that you're a God of love, that you have poured out that love within our hearts through your Spirit, that you have given us, not withheld anything from us, and given us your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, as a stand-in, as a substitute for all of our transgressions, For all of our iniquities, for all of our sin, for all of our sickness, it was all placed on him, our Father. And we, in return, get his righteousness. Father, thank you for loving us in this way. Thank you for loving us by giving us your spirit. Thank you for loving us by giving us the church. Father, we pray that our love would be reflected back to you this morning. And as we partake of this meal together. It's just a visible demonstration of your love for us. We, we pray that, Father, we would mirror that love in our walk with Christ. We pray these things for his sake. Amen.
1: Good morning, everybody. I'm going to read from Romans 5.8. But God, you know, when I opened up my uh, iPod, it's been a while since I opened it and an electronic check came out of it. An old electronic, I was, never mind, sorry. I'll back to, <laughs> thank you, Simon. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been, now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were enemies, we were reconciled but to God. Through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And I can't help but think we don't appreciate what Christ has done enough in our life. And guys, I want you to imagine that you committed a crime. And that crime is so bad that the law is going to come to your house, take you away, put you through trial, and then condemn you to death. But instead of coming to get you, they come and, get, and got your wife. And they took her, and you never said anything. They tried her, and they murdered her. How would you feel? Would you feel terrible? I think we need to feel that anguish, that pain for our own sin. So this story, this song is about what Christ did. And I want you to imagine yourself being there witnessing his murder for you. And I truly believe that you cannot truly appreciate what he did for you until you fully understand your own wretchedness. Stricken, smitten. See him dying on the tree. Tis the Christ by man rejected. Yes my soul tis he tis he tis a long expected prophet it was David's son yet David's Lord I see sufficient of it. Tis the true and faithful word. Tell me who hear him groan. Was there ever grief like his? Friends through fear his caused us only Foes insulting his distress Many hands were raised to wound him None would interpose to save But the deep his stroke that pierced him Was the stroke that justice gave? Here we, ye who think of sin so lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly. Here is guilt me has to meet mark the sacrifice appointed see who bears the awful load tis the word the Lord's anointed tis of where the Son of God Here we have a firm foundation. Here the refuge of the lost. Here's the rock of our salvation. is the name of which we boast: the Lamb of God for sinners wounded, sacrificed. cancel all our guilt. None shall ever be confounded who on him our whole.
0: Thank you, John, Simon, or two. Thank you let's take together in remembrance of our Savior and His sacrifice on our behalf. You are dismissed.